What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. No, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Adam, you asked me to review Fifty Shades of Grey. I did it. You asked me to come up with the top five movie tattoos that I would get. I did that too. But this right here, my friend, happens to be the stupidest idea I've ever heard of in my life. We all have to sacrifice sometimes, Josh. That's what life is all about. Tyrese Gibson as Roman there in a clip from Furious 7. This week on the show, the culmination of a great many weeks planning and anticipation. And ignoring children for the sake of watching all the Fast and Furious movies. Yet again, more sacrifice. We'll review Furious 7 and share this week's top five, the very best, Fast and Furious moments. You're so proud of yourself. You should see the smile on his face right now. Just call me the Alpha. Plus, film spotting madness, final four results, and more. All ahead on film spotting. Spotting is pleased to be once again brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Josh, you're going to be shocked, but they are not currently showing any of the Fast and Furious movies. No kidding. They are showing one of the competitors in Film Spotting Madness, though, a project that was near and dear to his heart, Joaquin Phoenix. In the Casey Affleck-directed I'm Still Here, the notorious documentary about his retirement, Phoenix, that is, from acting and start of a newfound hip-hop career, they also are showing a spell to ward off the darkness. Separately acclaimed mavericks in the world of experimental film, Ben Rivers and Ben Russell here collaborate on an entirely one-of-a-kind project and feature film. It's a triptych following an unnamed man exploring three different attempts at utopia. This sounds fascinating, Josh. A hippie commune, surviving alone in nature, and participating in a black metal music concert. A unique viewing experience. It showcases a radical search for a soul's fulfillment. I believe that's also the tagline for Furious 7. I'm in. I'm all in. Movie's also giving an exclusive 30-day run to the most recent Golden Leopard winner at the Locarno Film Festival. That's Lav Diaz's From What Is Before. This is vividly shot in black and white, and it's the acclaimed Filipino auteur's rural drama, which intertwines multiple storylines across an epic runtime to reflect on the Philippines in a time of turmoil. Everyday movies curators introduce a new title, and then you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, and that's all for $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Listeners of Film Spotting can try Movie free for a month. Just go to movie.com slash filmspotting to redeem now. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash filmspotting. You're listening to Film Spotting with Adam and Josh, a.k.a. Click and Clack the Tappet Brothers. <laughs> Lots of car talk, potentially, yes. this week on the show as we reckon with the 15-year seven-part Fast and Furious franchise. We go from Sajajit Ray to The Fast and the Furious. Naturally. That's how how we roll here on Film Spotting. We have gone from furious novices to completists in the past couple of weeks. Living our lives a quarter mile at a time, Adam. That is the line I've been feeding my family. I don't know about you, Josh. The top five this week are favorite Fast and Furious moments. And while I am taking credit or taking the blame, we'll see how it goes, for forcing you to marathon all of these movies and review Furious 7, this top five 
was your idea. Yeah, that's all mine. Don't forget. We'll also announce the results of the Film Spotting Madness Final Four, setting up a grand championship battle. But first, our review of Furious 7. If Vin Diesel's Dom really lives his life a quarter mile at a time, I believe this seventh installment would put him at the mile and three-quarter mark. Dominic Terrell, you don't know me. You're about to. Looks like the sons of London have followed us home. Remember Owen Shaw? This is Big Bad Brother. We'll be in hunting. One last ride. One of the main reasons we embarked on this Fast and the Furious project, Adam, which did mean watching all six of the previous films in anticipation of Furious 7, was because of the reputation the franchise has in certain serious cinema circles. I don't think any of these cracked many top ten lists. I'm not saying that. But enough of the critics we follow have said positive things about them over the years. We thought that we'd see what the minor fuss was about. We'll spend most of our time on the newest installment, Furious 7, which finds the team of fugitive street racers led by Dominic Toretto, that's Vin Diesel, and Brian O'Connor, Paul Walker, on the defensive against a rogue British agent played by Jason Statham. I do want to hear how Furious 7 worked for you on its own terms, but I'm also curious where you'd place it within the series and where you'd place the series itself as an action franchise. Was this time well spent? Is there something special about the Fast and the Furious films? And if so, is Furious 7 a worthy representative? Yes. It is. Good. Yes, to all three. So you had fun. Are we done? No, we've got to explain why <laughs> okay. Adam Kempinar, Art House Adam, had fun with oh, this no. franchise. I don't know if I'm prepared for that. But your question about whether it's a worthy representative is an interesting one because I have to throw the question back to you. Are you referring to the first half of the series or the latter half of the series? Because rhetorical question, Josh. Having watched the whole series in preparation for Seven, as you mentioned, there are two distinct approaches here. You see a definite split. Yeah, I think there is a definite split. The Fast and the Furious, one, is just a blatant point break ripoff. And really through the fourth film, which is called what, Josh? Little quiz, pop quiz, hot shot? Fast and Furious, also my favorite. It is Fast and Furious, but See, spoiler alert, homework. you're jumping ahead here. <laughs> you basically have, through those first four movies, variations on movies like Point Break, even if they don't follow the exact plot line, Undercover Cops, A Crew of Thieves, Pulling Off Heist, it keeps it to the world of the streets. By the time we get to Fast Five, this crew is somehow morphed into Ocean's Eleven. Mm-hmm. And then by the time we get to Six, which is called what, Josh? Uh, f- fast and Furious Six. Yes, it is. Yes! <laughs> They're Ocean's Eleven with the added skills of Jason Bourne somehow. Just all of a sudden overnight they've developed these skills. And actually, to the screenwriter's credit, Chris Morgan here, he actually has a character in that film, Tyrese, verbalized this. There's a great line where he says something like, this is crazy. We're not in Brazil anymore. We got cars jumping around. We're not cut out for this. Something along those lines. We don't do this stuff, I think We don't do this. Exactly. Well, no, you didn't through four or five films, but now all of a sudden you do. That's the turn this series takes. And the action sequences, of course, become more absurd and audacious accordingly. You know what this all means. What's that? Furious 8's in space. It better be. I mean, where else can it go? Where else can it go? Seven, I think, is certainly representative of the Bourne slash Mission Impossible side to the franchise. And it does take it to new, absurd, audacious heights. And yet, despite this split, and despite the fact that, if I'm being honest, I don't even really like at least four of the films in this series. Okay. I don't know about you. It probably had to do with watching them all in a marathon like this. I had the bizarre sensation watching Furious 7 of actually 
being nostalgic for the franchise I was in the midst of experiencing. Yeah, sure. And not just the way Paul Walker's death informs so much of the movie, especially, obviously, the ending of the film. But Morgan and Justin Lin, the director of several previous installments and James Wan here, they've managed to weave all of these characters together to create a mythology. There is a Fast and Furious universe where each movie has callbacks to previous characters and moments and storylines and even more, Josh, than the big action set pieces. What, for me, has grounded this whole series is those characters and this concept of family that connects them all to each other. And, of course, that doesn't necessarily mean related through blood. Here in particular, in Seven, the development of Michelle Rodriguez's character, Letty, I think that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. I found that emotionally satisfying, how that all ties back to the themes of the larger franchise as a whole in terms of not just family, but specifically domesticity versus this 10-second life and trying to establish your own identity. That was all effective for me. And did I mention they drop cars from a plane? Yes, they do. (laughs) They do. Which has been done in the A-Team movie. I believe it's a tank there. See, I skipped that. So it's not, it's I not the entirely original, but it works much better here for one of the reasons I'll get to why I do overall appreciate this franchise. Probably it sounds like a little bit more than you. The only one that I really didn't care for was Too Fast, Too Furious. And I think Furious 7 is representative of the entire franchise, really. You're right. There is definitely a break that comes as the movies get bigger. And I also like the ones before that break a little bit better. But I found a few through lines in doing this whole marathon Mm -hmm. that did carry through just about every film. You mean the music video sequences, Too Fast, Too Furious. You mean the music video sequences? sequences? Yeah. Yeah, those, those were pretty common as well. That's a through line. That's for sure. And that's where maybe we'll just say right here an acknowledgement that these are incredibly sexist movies, although they do allow for fem- strong female characters. Without they go out of their way for that. But they're, the sequences you're talking about are incredibly sexist. So uh, acknowledging that, definitely a weakness of the franchise. But a through line and a strong thing, the strong thing, is something that I've, I've used this term to try to explain to people why I like these movies and not other action movies, and it's Zen Chaos. Mm-hmm. And I especially use it when trying to convince people who like Michael Bay movies, the majority of the there, bad Michael Bay movies. There are people? Not, not Pain and Gain, the good one. I knew you had to drop but that But the others, there. where it's just chaos. It's missing the Zen. And what Justin Lin, through the majority of these films, has done, and also I think James Wan here in Furious 7, has been able to capture these sublime ridiculousness of these stunts and so they are something absurd you'll never it will never happen in real life couldn't possibly happen in real life but what they do is they bring clarity they bring precision and they bring control to these stunts so that you always know exactly how something is happening you see it happening you understand it and it's thrilling Mm -hmm. and that it may you I may sound like I'm just saying, shouldn't any decent action movie do this? Yes, it should. But most don't. And also very few, even the ones who are competent, very few bring it to this level and this consistency throughout the franchise where most of the stunts are done this way. I think the fact that they rely on practical effects quite often rather than CGI, CGI is used here and there. 
but primarily practical effects has something to do with it too. I agree. There's an authenticity there. So I definitely like that. And let me give you an example of what I'm talking about that'll bring us back to Furious 7. And it's almost a throwaway shot, but a lot of these Zen chaos moments are throwaway shots. It's when they're (laughs) just describing these as ridiculous. After they've parachuted out of the plane in their cars, they've landed on this curving mountain road and they're trying to rescue a hostage from a terrorist convoy on a bus. Well, at one point, Dom finds himself driving off the road down the actual mountainside, which, of course, on its own is ridiculous. And he has an enemy car parallel to him. Behind him is a larger truck that's chasing him. There is a shot where the frame is broken. One side is Dom's car. One side is the enemy car. And they're racing in parallel, essentially street racing down a mountain. Right. And in behind, there's just enough of a window between them so that behind you see that truck misjudge the curve, tip over and start rolling down the mountain. Again, a split second, but everything is in its proper place so that you believe it. And there are a lot of moments like that throughout the franchise that elevated it for me. I agree. I think that precision is a big part of it, that sense of really always knowing where you are and that the filmmakers are in complete control. I think that does matter. I think Zen Chaos is a perfect way to put it. And I had fun with that sequence, that entire sequence. That moment is great. I love the fact that As we said, they actually drop cars out of a plane, whether it's been done before or not. There was something about this time seeing it on IMAX, which is how I was able to see it, where I got a little bit dizzy. I'm not kidding. I don't know if it was a sense of vertigo or what, but something about on that big screen and the way they use the camera there mm-hmm. and it flips and tumbles upside down during that sequence. Lon's camera does a lot of tumbling in this film. A lot more than... Distinct from Lynn. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right here. And I don't know how much I loved it in some of the fight scenes, but I really liked it there in that sequence. I thought it brought a lot to it. And also just the way they set it up with the humor, with Tyrese's character. It isn't just about the stunt. You understand kind of the character dynamics that are also at play, Mm -hmm. which is something, again, I think this series does really well. To that point, in terms of talking about this as a big action series, what I also really appreciated about Furious 7 is this is probably the first time in the series where we actually had a compelling villain, at least insofar as he was genuinely intimidating. I mean, Jason Statham isn't a guy who I've seen a lot of those transporter movies, but whenever I have seen him on screen, I found him to be a compelling presence. And he is here. And that's one difference in this movie, too, I noticed from the previous installments, at least I think I'm right on this front, which is that the movie actually opens with the bad guy. We don't get a sequence where we are introduced to the good characters and pick up where they left off. This series does a lot of that, picking up exactly where it left off. Or we get this really thrilling set piece like the Bond films. Instead, we open with a sequence with Statham. And I thought that was overall pretty effective, even though I'll be honest, the most offensive part of this movie for me was actually kind of the joke of that whole sequence in the hospital where... Deckard Shaw, played by Statham, is going to visit his brother, who was the bad guy in Fast and Furious 6. And it mines a lot of bloodshed, really, and just all-out murder for jokes, which I didn't find all that funny. And it's not going to play well at an age where public spaces like that are being attacked, and we see that sort of thing on news Exactly, I can see that. And you watch it, and it's just—it's unnecessary, and I understand that the— unnecessariness is the joke. The the -the over-the-topness of it as it fits with this whole series is the joke. I didn't find it very funny. But as a presence, I liked watching him do battle with Dom, with Vin Diesel. I liked watching him do battle with The Rock. I watched enough, Josh, 80s movies 
with Steven Seagal and Jean-Claude Van Damme and Chuck Norris, not to mention Schwarzenegger movies and Sylvester Stallone movies, that there is still a juvenile thrill that I get from watching two of these action superheroes fight each other where you go what would happen if they fought each other well we get to see what would happen if statham fights these two different guys yeah that's because statham is he's amazing i mean i'm a big fan of the transporter film i think he's a little bit those fight scenes are good but i think overall he's a little bit underused here i actually think the best villain was in fast and furious 6 his brother played by luke evans that was the first time i had that yeah he's not as scary is he's not as much of a yeah but he's a he's an intellectual threat in how he designs his cars we'll get to more of him him in the show but statham the one thing too is they reduce him at some point to throwing a lot of grenades, and he's sort of an explosives threat too. And you don't you don't need Jason Statham no, to have just, grenades. Yeah. You have Jason Statham. That's right. So I wish they'd done a little bit more of that. You mentioned the emotional resonance or the character building, and this is another reason why I did appreciate the franchise. Besides the clarity of the action, it's not it's not only that. I really became involved in all of this bro bonding yeah. between Dom and Brian. Sure. And I'm not, you know, I'm, I, that's just, this is not my world. I am in no way a gearhead. So there's nothing here naturally to attract me to it. But the conversations these two have at times throughout the series, and they're often in a garage, they're often over tools, and they're often talking about things I have no idea what they're talking about, but that's how these men communicate. Mm-hmm. They say all that needs to be said, and they're very genuine. I mean, Diesel can sell this sort of stuff. He has a sincerity to the scenes that make them work. And I think Walker really grew into the part that he has, where he brings this sort of sunny optimism to Diesel's more stolidity that yeah. he has. And and I just think they're they're really good together. And the rock they is both a good, get better as the franchise. They definitely goes both on get too. better, but it's there at the start. It's there in the Fast and the Furious. I think they have there is a spark of this these two guys who recognize each other that even though they're adversaries in that film, that there is something they respect about each other and it comes out in those scenes and does only build. And I think that the rock is an example of how maybe that doesn't work because he's a guy I'm not actually a huge fan of him in this franchise I'm, I'm fine with the rock otherwise but I don't know that he's right for this franchise because he is he's a comedian he's a funny guy yeah he knows what he's doing and he lets you know what he's doing a well, lot of times on have, screen let's go back real quick sorry to interrupt but that moment in Fast Five where he steps off the plane he surveys the wreckage and he says Whatever you do, don't let them get in their cars. That might be the most pointed, obvious, on-the-nose joke yeah. in the entire series up to that point, to your point, Jeff. Right, and and he has a lot of lines that he sells as jokes. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, that that just seemed, it seemed to right. let the air out of the... Maybe it's what had to happen for this series to go as long as it did. But it did, for me, let the air out of the sincerity that Diesel at least brought to it, that Walker added to... But thankfully, you get those two as the series goes on, and it's definitely here in Furious 7. Now, sadly, some of that is because they do, within the movie's narrative, acknowledge Walker's death, at least obliquely. And and I think they do it very well. I think it's handled quite well, and it also does bring that—this is really— you know, a relationship movie about the two of them. I agree with you. Michelle Rodriguez is integral to the franchise. Mm-hmm. And when she came back to it, it brought a lot more. And she's definitely a huge part of Furious 7. But overall, this is the relationship of these two guys and how it started and where it's gone. And they make all those moments feel true. You got to get out of here. I am 
You're listening to Film Spotting. We are discussing Furious 7 and the Fast and Furious franchise overall. I think that's a little bit of a difference we see in it. You responded more immediately in the Fast and Furious 1 to that bro bonding. And while that was something that I found intriguing about the series and overall effective, it's how it splintered off into all the other relationships, including Paul Walker's relationship with Dom's sister, Jordana Brewster, and all those sub-relationships that happen and how it ties into that larger theme of this family. That is really what connected with me more so than the the bromance. So even if the Walker and Diesel side fell off a little bit, I felt like the filmmakers picked that up and compensated in other ways. And just real quick to go back to say them, the one point I want to make in terms of why I think it worked for me so much more, actually, than even his brother, Owen Shaw, in the previous series, is that his motivation here, revenge, versus whatever the motivation is of Owen Shaw's in the previous one. That's it's the same as any James Bond villain. Exactly. But here, that revenge, <laughs> that gives it a weight where you truly feel like he's going to be relentless. He's never going to stop. It also mirrors the family angle of the Furious gang, right? The fact that he isn't going to give up because he's got something at stake. He's invested sure. in this. And I like the way that mirrored overall, as I said, Dom and Brian's crew. You mentioned the ending, and I do want to talk about it a little bit. I don't think we can spoil anything here. Everything that's been written about this film has really talked about it. Obviously, Walker's death, as we said, informs the ending of this film. And it's even hard just to actually watch certain lines from the film. I mean, there's a, a funeral at one point in the movie, and someone says something about how I'm tired of going to funerals. And his character, Walker's character, says, well, there's only going to be one more. It's yeah. hard not to sort of take a breath in that moment, knowing what really happened. But at the end of this film, it's very interesting to me. They did try, and probably pulled off, trying to make this be a tribute to him, and make that tribute actually work in the construct of the movie, in that they work in this angle that it's sort of one last job, right? And so they're obliquely trying to suggest that, well, we may never see Paul Walker again because he's decided to ride off in the sunset and, and just be a dad or whatever the case is, right? But it goes so far in paying tribute to him that it no longer feels like it really is part of this movie world. And I was trying to think of another case, Josh, where a movie that was affected in a way like this, and there probably haven't been that many examples, but a movie or a series that was affected by a death where it let it completely alter the movie world in the way this one does. There's no way this movie would, even if that character would eventually decide to do what that character decides to do, they never would have shot it this way. They never would have made it have that emotional heft that they bring no, it that's, here. They that's... completely take you out of the movie world. Oh, no. no. I, I think that's fine what you're saying is true but i was fine with it i, I think was it's too. all right because it, it works it wonderfully worked. for yeah. it and maybe what they would not have done is linger quite as long on the beach scene i agree with that that does seem to go on a little long and almost each of the supporting characters get to comment on it in a way where you you know yeah. they're, they're hitting it mm -hmm. but the saving grace for me is the slight coda after the beach scene because that is not only a callback to how 
for sure one of the films ended, The Fast and the Furious, and perhaps a few other. They are blurring together a little bit for me now by having Dom and Brian race once more. Yeah, there is another one. And and that's something that would have happened no matter what because it's happened before. This is what these guys do. When all the action is over, they still have to race each other. They're not satisfied. Yeah, and there's, there's definitely an artificiality to it, though, because it is artificial. I mean, it's, no, this it's is, definitely fabricated for— uh, Well, what, how so, though? If they've done it in previous films, there's been two occasions where the the action has been over, and their response is not to just kick back and have a Mai Tai. I know, but— Their response is, the way it's we're actually still going to race. The way it's actually shot and depicted, you can tell that, well, literally, they had I, to fabricate it. They I had would to, have, they I had would to have put to him back. in that space when he wasn't really there. I would, and you feel that. I felt it. The race. The race itself. The, the overhead— shot of their race no i'm thinking of the lingering shots we get of paul walker what i'm referring to is the the overhead shots of the race itself where they unlike their previous races that Mm -hmm. they've done at the end of films here's one where they are racing at some point and then the road just diverges Mm -hmm. and that to me just seemed like what what lighter of a way could you just touch on that without having any sappy dialogue without having any really lingering looks. I mean, maybe I'm misremembering it, but to me, like the last, like good, the last impression of this film, 30 seconds, maybe 20 seconds Mm -hmm. are of just two cars overhead, a very similar shot to what we've seen. It's like a mountainous desert terrain in so many other films, but instead of racing together down a road, they diverge. I mean, that it's just yeah. a no, lovely way nice. to end I think, it. So. I, I think maybe what you're not remembering as clearly as I do is the 30 seconds to a minute before that. That is something very much they had to construct okay. in order to have this dramatic, emotional, heavy moment. That's fine, though. I felt it. I fell for it hook, line, and sinker okay. with the end of this movie. And I think, again, though, that goes back to this whole notion of family and not just the fact that his death gave it some heft, but all those relationships, the way his marriage plays out in this film and how that's mirrored with the relationship with Vin Diesel and Michelle Rodriguez's character. It worked. It worked. I thought they threaded all those through lines together in an effective yeah. way. Yes, of course, it's ultimately about the the stunts, but in a way, it's a lot more than that. I think if it was just that, I wouldn't be nearly as invested as I was. And it is cumulative. I mean, you do have to wonder if we hadn't watched these packed together, what the experience would be like. I certainly think that having come to these with maybe one that we saw years ago, skipped a few others, caught another one, then saw this one, you wouldn't be doing justice to the franchise, which, you know, makes you think we talk about how how prepared do we feel for a review? How much homework do we feel like we have to do it? We never feel like we get a chance to do as much as we'd like. Or maybe whether we should or not. Right. And this is an instance where I think it makes clear that to do justice to the franchise, you really did need to watch them all, which ultimately speaks to the care they've given to it. Yeah. As you said, as a mythology. Yeah. So I'm very glad that we did. I do agree. I think I would have had a very different experience with this movie. I think I would have appreciated it on a purely visceral level in terms of some of the exhilarating action sequences. But I wouldn't have cared nearly as much about the characters and their relationships if I hadn't seen those previous movies. I also feel, as we're going to close here, Josh, that we can't get through this review without at least mentioning Kurt Russell, who appears here, one of my favorite 80s action heroes, and I think... He's really fun. He is. Yeah, he's a nice touch. It's, again, more of the winking direction that the series has gone, but he makes that work. Furious 7, it was a huge box office hit, and it's currently out in wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Now, 
Josh, we've gotten through seven. Let's go back to where we began. You wanted to sort of put this movie in perspective in terms of the overall series. I'm not going to dare to start comparing this to other action franchises at this point, haven't given that any thought really. But this series overall, I did do a little bit of research. I did some homework here and I did some math here. And I looked at, of course, all these various websites that have taken the time to rank the films in the series. And there is a bit of conventional wisdom. You've probably even caught on to it, whether or not you did the math. There is some conventional wisdom in terms of which movies are supposedly yes. the best and how this should go. And I will give you that ranking here. It does start with Fast, Fast Five. Five. Yes, yeah, that so, was my impression. The fifth film. The seventh film, the one we just talked about, number two in the series. Wow. Then number six. So the last three films are the top three, according to most people weighing in on this. Then they go back to the original, Fast and Furious 1. Tokyo Drift actually coming in third from the bottom, the third movie in the series. Then Fast and Furious, which you've already said is your favorite, second from the bottom. Come on. Yep. And then the one you like the least, Too Fast, Too Furious, is dead last. Yeah, that's not surprising. Well, it is surprising to me, but we'll get back come to that on. in a minute. You no, no, I, I kind of like it. We'll Where do come you back have it? To, well, I want to hear you first, Josh. What's your ranking? We know you start. I started with, with Fast four. and Furious. We know you end with two. Yeah, and and just real quickly for Fast and Furious, because apparently this is controversial to not have Fast Five. I've gotten heat for this, but I do Deservedly appreciate these so. more. I appreciate these more before they blow up, balloon, bring in the winking stuff. Not that I, I have a problem with that overall. It's just loses some of the sincerity that I did like about them. And I think Fast and Furious mixes Justin Lin's directorial touch, which is crucial, with the sincerity and brings it all together right there. That's the sweet spot, Fast and Furious. Then I do go back to the first film, The Fast and the Furious. Really enjoyed that. Furious 7, I have it at third. Maybe that's high just because it's the most recent experience and because I did appreciate the ending so much. But right now it's at number three. Fast Five finally comes in here. At number four, Fast and Furious 6 is number five. Tokyo Drift, I have down there. I did appreciate the camera work done by Lynn, but really, without Paul Walker and Vin Diesel, I can't have it much higher than that. <laughs> and then Too Fast, Too Furious. Yeah, that was that was a rough go. Tyrese. Funny. No. Funny. Oh, Adam. I mean, I'm it took me... It was finally <laughs> this movie, Furious 7, where I could tolerate Tyrese's scenes. He yeah, just I like how tries he, I like how he's used here. so hard in Too Fast, Too I Furious. I like his it's chemistry painful. with Paul Walker. No. Well, it took a few films to develop. <laughs> I didn't find it painful there. So, yeah, you're right. You've got a completely out of whack ranking in terms of <laughs> the rest of the viewing public, which is great. For me, unfortunately, falling a little bit more in line, I've got Fast Five at number one. I just think it is the overall most sophisticated film in the franchise, and I mean that in terms of the action set pieces, but also the structure and the screenplay and the story and the way it fleshes out what for me, as we've already touched on, is really the through line of this franchise, which is family. That's where it really hits. In it has the biggest stunts. I'll give it that. Well, that's not what I love about it. But it is overall that connective tissue with all the other characters that gets beyond just the main bromance. Seven is my second favorite. Then I go to number six. That falls pretty well below five and seven. So that's kind of a top tier for me with five at the top, seven really close. Six is beneath those pretty considerably. Okay. That last group of four films for me is a second tier that I would dub okay to mediocre, and I could just as easily flip any four of them in different directions, and it wouldn't make that much of a difference for me. The one area where I will depart from dogma on this is I've got number two 
actually in that fourth spot, Josh. So we disagree on just how bad Too Fast, Too Furious is. I don't think it's that bad. It's your fourth yeah. favorite film well, like in this said, franchise. Well, like I said, it doesn't really matter. Fourth or seventh is really irrelevant Still, at this point. Still, that, that is a more insane opinion to have Too Fast and is. Too Furious fourth than it is to have Fast and Furious first. I'll stand by it. I'm good with that. I like the Walker and Tyrese dynamic. Oh. It's got one standout oh. moment that just missed my top five. And I do think that John Singleton, the director of this one, is having some fun with it, Josh, where one for me takes itself so seriously while also being a really weak point break ripoff that I like the fact that two finally embraces the silliness of it all. And Someone who crystallized it perfectly, actually, and had it ranked sixth in the series overall, but I saw a ranking on Time.com, and they said two really isn't as bad as everyone makes it out to be, and I think they're right in saying that Singleton actually took sort of all those elements of the first one and said, I'm just going to embrace the absurd truly, not in terms of the action and, and all the ridiculous areas those sequences go, but just in terms of almost making it a parody of the first film. And what that writer notes is every drag racer is color-coded in neon clothes to match their neon cars. Ludacris is the big-haired king of Miami, and Tyrese rips his shirt off so you can admire his glistening physique while he punches in a window. And never has there been a more hilarious, unconvincing Argentine drug lord than Carter Verone. He's right. He's is, right. Was he Argentine? Is, yeah, I was wondering about that. That's what I love that. about it. Okay. I had to look that up because... <laughs> He's Cole Hauser. He's white. He's this homeless man's Scarface. And so what I do think is, this is my defense of Too Fast, Too Furious, Josh. I think that at some point, even though John Singleton has made some films I really hate, I think he's made some really bad films. I think he's in on the joke here with this one. And I think it's evident from the opening drag racing sequences. Well, that may very well be his intent, but it didn't work. I I didn't prepare to get into a debate over Too Fast, Too Furious. But I guess all, all I will bring to the table is that if you're going to make pretty much a third-rate Miami Vice episode, mm-hmm. speaking of copying things, if it bothered you so much that this is a Point Break ripoff. It didn't bother as, me. As it didn't Point bother Break me. is, you know, no. this holy grail that cannot ever be It didn't be bother me that it dared to or do imitated. that. It's how it did it. <laughs> if you're going to make a third-rate Miami Vice episode, at least make decent use of Eva Mendez. You're right. Wasted. Totally I mean, that's here. just a crime on its yeah. own. No, so she's, it goes she's, to the bottom she's for totally that. wasted. I'm with you on that. I will say about your favorite film, because I really wrestled with this one, Josh. I like John Ortiz. He's one of the bad guys in this film. It does have one of my top five moments in it, which we'll get to later. And I do think it's also where you really start to see Walker mature as an actor. I think I had the toughest time, and this is another area where I think we just depart a little bit, is... That structure and that script, forget plot holes in four. There's not a single decision any character makes at any point that has a shred of logic to it. And that is hard. When you've already got all the absurdity of the action scenes, <laughs> when everything else holding it together is completely ridiculous, I have next, a hard time with that. Next, I want your ranking poor character decisions oh, for the Fast and Furious franchise done that and, and show how blatant Fast and Furious is compared to the others. You know what? Furious 7, though, <laughs> Furious 7 has actually the worst example of that. And I let it slide because the film was working for me <laughs> so well overall. I cannot believe that there's that much of a gap in poor characters. There was for me. There was. Films. There was. And it also does get hurt, Josh, by the fact that it has the worst ending finale sequence that was done, speaking of ripoffs, much better in Temple of Doom. And it feels totally CGI and just really awful. Everything about the end driving sequence in Fast and Furious is the worst action set piece of the whole series. Wait a minute. The prison bus? No, no. The prison bus is cool. Okay. I'm thinking of, but we don't see that all play out, actually. I'm thinking okay, of- Okay, I was going to say, you're, of, you're trashing one of my moments I now. Like that. If you, I like that okay. sequence. All I'm right. talking about everything that 
precedes that that gets them to that point in the tunnels. Okay. Not good. And speaking of, as I said, relying way too heavily on CGI, which the rest of the franchise has done a really good job of avoiding. I do want to see, yeah, I do want to see a breakdown of how we'll get into some behind the scenes in our moments, I think, of how they actually did do some of these effects. I would be very curious to see a breakdown of what CGI was Mm -hmm. used in what film, uh, just so we could get a better understanding of that. I'm with you on that. All right. Is that we covered everything as far as Furious 7? For now. Is this our longest review of 2015 so far? No. (laughs) No? No, not even close. (laughs) Okay. Just sort of feels like it. Find out who made it to the Film Spotted Madness Championship game next, along with a speedy and perturbed edition of Massacre Theater. Stay with us. Money's the motivation, money's the conversation. You on vacation, we getting paid, so we on vacation. I did it for the fam. It's whatever we had to do, it's just who I am. Yeah, it's the life I chose. Gunshots in the dark, one eye closed. We got it cooking like a one-eyed stove. You can catch me kissing my girl with both eyes closed. Yeah. Perfecting my passion, thanks for asking. Couldn't slow down, so we had to crash it. You use plastic, we bout cash. I see some people ahead that we gon' pass, yeah. I never feared death or dying. I only fear never trying. I am whatever I am. Only God can judge me your film was that scene with the dogs around the garbage how did you stage that i said hey shoot those dogs beautiful you want to come get a bite with us why do you suddenly want to hang out with a couple of 25 year olds we were just 25 i mean we weren't but you know it'll be fun Ben Stiller and Naomi Watts and a bit of the trailer there from While We're Young, the latest from director Noah Baumbach. Welcome back to Film Spotting. Stiller and Watts are, as you heard there, a childless couple in their 40s who start hanging out with some very hip 20-somethings played by Adam Driver and Amanda Seyfried. And Josh, having just seen this movie prior to coming in to sit down with you and talk about Furious 7, I can say we will not be relating to the young hip no couple. no we're old speak for yourself Adam. we are old that's a nice fedora you're wearing though by the way <laughs> while we're young will be our review next week it's out in limited release and playing here in chicago our top five next week right now we're going with midlife crisis movies should be fun of course though if there are some young hip erudite 25 year old listeners out there who have a better idea we will follow your lead and if you're over 40, we won't even listen to your no, idea? No. Is that where you're going here? <laughs> Why would we do that? Okay. We can listen to ourselves, though. I can't believe I just put myself over 40. Yeah, How you're not dare there I? yet. No, I'm not. It's and coming I'm up milk quick. It. I, shut up. <laughs> I'm going to milk it for every last moment I can. That is while we're young. Again, looking forward to that next week here on the show. Going back in time a little bit. We did recently wrap up our Satyajit Ray Marathon, the great Indian auteur. We shared our Mitras, our Best of the Ray Marathon Awards, talked about six of his movies over the course of five separate podcasts. So if you aren't already subscribed or you missed this and you want to go back and check it out, we encourage you to do that. We had an amazing time with the Satyajit Ray Marathon. So many good, good films in that series and all that information is over at filmspotting.net. Just click on marathons or subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. How do you feel, honestly, about the fact that in the last month, month and a half, we've spent more viewing hours on Fast and Furious movies than Satyajit Ray films? (laughs) 
not great, but not terrible either. <laughs> okay. You know, I mean, you can live with to, it. I can. We had to okay. break down eventually, though. I've already seen some of the snarky comments on our Facebook page who, when I asked, what's your favorite Fast and Furious moment? They're like, <laughs> the one before this series ever happened, and everybody wasted their time with it. You know, all the hey, film snobs coming out. Right. So we're going to get some derision. That's fine. Just imagine if we'd done the Fast and Furious show. Without having done Ray. There At you go. At least we have that as defense. We've got some credibility, don't we? Just a little bit. We also are going to offer up a little bit of bonus content this week, as we often do. If you have the Film Spotting app, you can access it. That information also at our website, filmspotting.net. Just click on apps, and eventually we're going to get to some of the feedback to our Sacred Cow discussion of The Breakfast Club. I'm very grateful for all the really smart responses we've got, especially all the defenses we've got. Yeah, everyone loves the makeover scene. They do. Let's have more makeovers in our movies. They're just so inspirational. How dare you reduce it to that? So many smart takes (laughs) on that closing scene, and no, not just all from dudes. So I look forward to sharing that feedback and making Josh wrestle with it a little bit more in bonus content. But that's not what we're going to do this week. We are going to get to some feedback from our top five blind spotting list. This goes back to our 10th anniversary show, maybe a month or so ago, where we shared the movies that we're most embarrassed to admit we've never seen, or that's kind of part of it, the movies we really feel like we haven't seen and we need badly to catch up with. We're just sort of desperate to finally force ourselves to see them. And we got some great stuff, including if this gives you any sense of where Nick was going with his feedback, Josh, he writes, but the idea that you're actually embarrassed to have never seen something called late spring is preposterous. Preposterous. And he might not be wrong. We'll <laughs> we'll deal with that. And also, we got great stuff from listeners like Andrew Willis and Zach and his wife Karen right here in Chicago. They confess their most egregious cinematic oversights. Many others urge us to break down and watch Dr. Shivago. Good Much luck. to the delight of our listener, Christopher Reese, who really, I think it's going to be his dying wish, and it may be his dying wish. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't to get put it that way. There, <laughs> but we also got so many. I'd say, Josh, it was probably, I don't know if it was 50-50. Saying don't bother. But don't you think, based on what we saw on Twitter and Facebook and email, it was probably 45-55 people saying, no, you really don't need to see it. I, I'm afraid to say I <laughs> didn't feel much shame. No. That I saw on social media after that about Dr. Shivago. Sorry, well, Christopher. We'll probably feel a little bit more shame when we get to the bonus content and those emails from our listeners. With that, it's time for Massacre Theater. We perform a scene badly, and you get a chance at winning a prize. Last time we massacred this. I'm sorry about the way my father treated you. Oh, your father was great. I mean, he was great. The way he took care of Penny. Was... Yes, but I mean the way he was with you. It's really me it has to do with. Johnny, I came here because my father... No, the, the way he saved her... I mean, I, I could never do anything like that. That was something that... I mean, the reason people treat me like I'm nothing is because I'm nothing. That's not true. You, you're everything. You don't understand the way it is. I mean, for somebody like me. Last month, I'm, I'm eating juju bees to keep alive. This month, women are stuffing diamonds in my pockets. I'm balancing on shit. As quick as that, I could be down there again. No, it... It's not the way it is. It doesn't have to be that way. That was Jennifer Grey as Baby and Patrick Swayze as Johnny in 1987's Dirty Dancing. It was written by Eleanor Bergstein and directed by Emil Ardolino. The immortal Emil yes. Ardolino. I have learned something new every I will time be we looking do up Emil Ardolino's theater. Let's find filmography out what right now. other work Emil Ardolino is responsible for. We did massacre that scene a couple weeks back on episode 5. 30, we reviewed the new live-action adaptation of Cinderella and did our top five movies about royalty. The tie-in, 
Listener Jeff Webb in Charleston, West Virginia, nailed it. As many listeners did, both involved dancing and also romances between people of different classes. There you go. Melissa Land wrote from Kingsland, Georgia, Nobody puts Adam in a corner. If Josh wants to see some bad acting, he should watch Dirty Dancing, Havana Nights. The leads in that film have about as much chemistry as you two, maybe slightly less. Um, Excuse me, would that be the Dirty Dancing, Havana Nights that I gave three out of four stars to? (laughs) You didn't. I did. Oh, of course you did. It's so much better. (laughs) It is so much better. Oh, no. It's... The, hey, Diego Luna and Good who's, actor. who's the Ramola Garay, I think. Does that sound right? Yes, it does. They've got some chemistry. Really? And the dance scenes are well, good. Melissa Havana, Havana, much better setting than where's, well, where's Dirty Dancing? I was going to say, the for Poconos? your sins. No, it's in <laughs> the Catskills. It's yeah. upstate New York. I'll take Havana. <laughs> the Poconos. <laughs> You and geography, Josh. (laughs) But I was going to say, now this doesn't work, that for your sins of accusing Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Grey of not being good actors in Dirty Dancing, you should have to watch Havana Nights. Apparently, that wouldn't be punishment at all. And I'll enjoy it. Josh in Toronto says, I often listen with bemused horror as Josh champions films like Monkey Bone, Havana Nights. And I was on (laughs) Team Adam in the Great Argo War of 2012. We all remember where we stood on that. But never have I felt more a kindred spirit to Josh Larson than when on last week's show, he took Dirty Dancing to task for its terrible acting. I question the sanity of anyone who likes that movie. And then I question my own sanity for seemingly being the only one who hates it. But you got to stick to your guns. Jennifer Grey is atrocious. Swayze plays the role of creepy old guy number one without any of the (laughs) I'm in a bad movie charm that he shows in Roadhouse. Not even Jerry Orbach can save a movie that is so dumb it can't live up to its sleazy title in the way the genuinely kind of sexy sequel Dirty Dancing Havana Nights does. Nobody puts baby in a corner. No, nobody puts this movie in my DVD player. Josh, there you you go. It's Josh in Toronto. You just changed the city. No, no, no. Toronto's the Chicago of Canada. Well, fortunately, we have a voice of reason here to close us out, Josh. All right. Kate Getz from Chicago, Illinois. You may laugh, but it's one of my favorite moments from one of my favorite movies, hopelessly imprinted on that film's sensuality as an early adolescent in the 80s, but still love it for its exploration of social class, honest depiction of abortion issues, and having a lead actress who's not conventionally beautiful but acts the hell out of her role and convincingly depicts a real person. All rare things in movies. And the music? And Patrick Swayze. Boom. Kate. Yeah. Ding, ding, ding. Kate, the winner. Check out Havana Nights, Kate. <laughs> the if, winner here on If you went spotting. for Dirty Dancing like that, Havana Nights is going to blow your mind. I can't wait. More proof that this Massacre Theater contest isn't fixed. I could have just given the prize to Kate for that wonderful email. But you didn't. I didn't. The no. winner is Stephanie Smith from Birmingham, Alabama. Congratulations, Stephanie. I think Stephanie has been listening since 2006, Josh. Entering Massacre Theater since at least 2006. So I'm very glad that she won. And I'm guessing Stephanie has good taste and recognizes Dirty Dancing as the 80s masterpiece that it is. <laughs> masterpiece, huh? All right, we're all dying to know about Emil Ardolino's career. Yes. After Dirty Dancing, he directed Chances Are, Three Men and a Little Lady, a little film called Sister Act. <laughs> Okay. How about that? Wow. Which you also gave three stars. He, uh, I'd have to. I'd have to look at that. Uh, and then a TV movie, Gypsy, in 1993, has uh, uh, then he retired. Okay. It looks like no more Emil Ardolino. Congratulations, Stephanie. Email feedback at filmspotting.net to claim your very own film spotting T-shirt. That was the greatest acting I have ever seen. I just don't know how you do it, Gary. How do you make yourself so somber and emotional to make everybody cry like that? It's not that hard, really. I just think about the saddest moment in my life. Well, this is a first here on Massacre Theater. We're not exactly massacring the movie that we reviewed 
but close. We're going to go ahead and tell you that this is one of the films in the Furious franchise. Because it's still going to be a challenge, I think, to yeah. identify. I mean, I agree. they're not, you know, the dialogue doesn't always distinguish them, except no, for the doesn't. three or four iconic lines. That's right. I see you've changed your shirt. Oh, yeah. If you can call I'm, that a shirt. I'm bust. This thing isn't going to last tonight. I mean, I'm no. going to, these buttons are going to pop. Look Speaking out. of lasting, though, based on the character you're playing, the scene isn't very long. But considering how slow the character talks, this may be the whole show. We he's, may have to stop after this. He's thoughtful. Thoughtful. Yeah. I think that's a good way to put it. All right. Okay. The one note we'll throw out is that we did change a name just to make it a little bit more difficult. So you couldn't Google the character's name and figure out which movie this comes from in the Fast and Furious franchise because we wouldn't want you to cheat. You can't cheat. I mean, Brian calls Dom out on that. That's right. In one of their great races. I think that's in four. Even, I your think favorite it's movie. in Fast and Furious. So, yeah. Wow. You your we recollection. Are, this is amazing. We are, Man, we should just write the Wikipedia. How can we use this power not to write a Wikipedia entry? I think it ends tonight. (laughs) It's like Cinderella. It just disappears. I'll erase from my mind by the morning. Okay. With that, I started off. You give me the action. And action. Something interests you about this car? Just admiring the bodywork. Are you one of those boys who prefers cars to women? I'm one of those boys that appreciates a fine body regardless of the make. Your car? It's Utah's car. You'll meet him at the rendezvous. He'll be leading you. So now that I know you're tasting cars, tell me, what about your women? It starts with the eyes. She's got to have those kind of eyes that can look right through the BS to the good in someone. 20% angel... 80% devil, down to earth, ain't afraid to get a little engine grease under her fingernails. That doesn't sound anything like me. It ain't. And scene. scene. I think, did you just have a Novocaine shot? (laughs) I'll be all right. Right before that? I'll be all right. I don't know if you're going to I'm coming out of it. If you know what scene we just massacred from the Fast and Furious franchise, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Basically, even if you've never seen any of them, just guess. you got seven options. That's right. And, well, you only have six, really, because we told you it's not Furious 7. Your deadline is Monday, April 21st. Do you want to try that again with an accent this time? How dare you, sir? That was my accent. (laughs) The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced on the show in a couple of weeks. To get official Massacre Theater rules, visit filmspotting.net. What an incredible Cinderella story. This unknown comes out of nowhere to lead the pack. Bad Augusta, he's on his final hole. He's about 455 yards away. He's going to hit about a two iron, I think. Well, he got all of that. The crowd is standing on its feet here at Augusta. The normally reserved Augusta crowd going wild. Fitting, it's Masters time and the Cinderella story that is Bill Murray's run. That was Bill Murray's run in this year's Film Spotting Madness. It has a happy ending, Josh. For me, Murray's out. Oh, no. I'm spoiling the results. Before we even get to the numbers, (laughs) it happened. Bill Murray in the final four up against Jessica Chastain. It's not happening Hey, for he him. gave us, it was a fun ride, Bill, and you went further than anyone expected. Even I, though, I did vote against him this round. Yeah. I, I voted for him earlier, probably longer than most people thought I should, but at this point, I did have to give it to Chastain. So, good to see her win. Well, we'll put it in reverse a little bit here. Film Spotting Madness, of course, we started with 32 film spotting favorites, actors and actresses, only one 
can ultimately survive to act another day. Basically, a bunch of death matches between these wonderful performers. Last week, we shared the Elite Eight results. We got it down to the final four. And before we actually get into the numbers here, we got this email from Florian in Germany. Here's my prediction of what will happen. All the bitter Swinton, DiCaprio, and Gyllenhaal fans will put aside all their differences and vote against Murray, and by default for Chastain. Nothing unites like a common foe you want to see go down. Maybe some truth there. Maybe that is ultimately what drove a lot of these Chastain entries, but it wasn't a severe beating, that's for sure. It was pretty tight as Jessica Chastain took 55% of the vote over Bill Murray's 45. Wow, that is still crazy when you think about it. Yeah. (laughs) Way to go, Bill. (laughs) Ryan from New Jersey wrote in, Bill Murray will forever be my favorite comedic actor, but since discovering Chastain in Take Shelter in the Tree of Life in 2011, she has become my favorite working actress. Moving forward, Chastain makes me more excited to see films based solely on her being in it. While the only Bill Murray films I've gotten excited about in recent years were the ones directed by Wes Anderson. Chastain deserves the final spot, especially considering the juggernauts she's already been able to take down in Javier Bardem, Jennifer Lawrence, and Tom Hardy. Plus one for Chastain. That is a good point. Yeah, it is. That's a lot of tough matches she was up against. Well, speaking of tough matches, I don't think it gets any tougher than the one for me, Josh, frankly, I hoped would be the final matchup. What the championship? I think would be for me the championship bout. But the way the seating worked, they ended up facing each other in the final four. Michael Fassbender versus Joaquin Phoenix. And the numbers were so close, Josh. I really do regret we were talking about this before we came on air here that I would love to have left the voting open for just maybe another week as more people got to the website. We still had 2,000 votes. That's pretty sizable. Mm-hmm. Gives you a pretty good sample size in terms of deciding how film spotting listeners ultimately feel. I think that feel. qualifies it as a scientific study I think once so. you've hit 2,000. Exactly. But that said, how different would it be? Would it be a wider gap for the winner? Would it be even closer? Would the loser here eventually overtake and actually defeat the person who did win and that person who won? It's Michael Fassbender, but it was so close, 51% to 49%. That actually sounds wider than it is, 30 votes. That's crazy. 30 votes separated Fassbender and Phoenix. If we'd left it It open. It could have. That's what I'm saying. And I kind of wish it had. Yeah, even though- I went with Phoenix. Did you go Phoenix? It was tough, but in the end, I did go with Phoenix. We heard from Michael and El Cerrito, whereas the Chastain-Murray battle is a no-brainer. I love Bill, but come on. This one is a straight toss-up. Phoenix has been an A-lister for a bit longer than the Fass- the fast. Is that the first first time we've heard it. that? It's okay. allowed. <laughs> but these two are easily among today's more prized commodities when it comes to male actors under 50. Both radiate raw competence and quality. They look and feel like artists in their primes. What makes the face-off interesting is how different a space they occupy, style-wise. Fastbender is an emotive, incredibly sensitive presence cleverly concealed behind a matinee idol exterior. Phoenix, a dangerous hybridization of Brando and Day-Lewis with enough thespian wizardry to have no real need of charisma. Wow, he just nailed it. Really? Really? Both of them. That's perfectly. right. That's right on. Really, it's 50 50 for me. Marginal advantage to the fast simply because he's played fewer sociopaths and is therefore a bit more pleasant to consider. OK, fair <laughs> enough. Stephen in San Francisco says, I have to depart with film spotting conventional wisdom here and express some bewilderment that this is even up for debate. Fastbender is excellent. And maybe I haven't seen enough of his iconic performances to truly weigh in. But Phoenix is unbelievable. He embodies an entirely different persona every time he's put on screen. And it's never the one you'd expect. Who knew that porn stash loner in her would be so soulful? Who expected Doc Sportello to genuinely tug heartstrings in Inherent Vice? Who thought anyone could have outacted Philip Seymour Hoffman in The Master? Someday I'll stop being surprised by his genius, but today is not that day. He's walking home with the trophy. <laughs> nice. Wow, <laughs> the best email ever about Joaquin Phoenix just undone by that 
that little play on words. But if that email didn't make me feel worse, didn't make me feel bad enough, I should say, about going with Fastbender, mm-hmm. and I did, maybe almost just by default, I went to Fastbender, though I really did think about it, because as I said, this could have been the championship bout for me. I love Joaquin Phoenix and those performances Stephen mentioned so much. Then we got this comment from Edie in Chicago. Voting for Phoenix, not only because he's a better actor than Fassbender, not only because Joaquin would not be caught dead spending an entire movie with his arms outstretched pretending to move big metal things, let alone two, three such movies, not only because Fassbender coasts on his looks more often than fans care to admit. I don't even know what that means. I don't even know what that means. I am voting for Phoenix because this tournament became a sham after Fassbender beat out Kate Blanchett. Blanchett outclasses all the other 63 original scenes. Well, we didn't go that far. She belongs in the same category as Meryl Streep and Daniel Day-Lewis. The only reason Fassbender beat her is because of the love the man gets on this show, which has unfortunately clouded the good judgment of too many voters. Fassbender will win the tournament. Shame on you, Adam. Ooh, ouch. <laughs> that hurts. That leaves a mark, Edie. I mean, I'm not going to recover from that. And let's say this. Joaquin Phoenix could not hold up his arms and move an entire baseball field. I'd like to see him try. He couldn't do it. No, he's he's capable of a lot, but... That's Fassbender territory. So th- this is your final decision. That's, it's, it that's comes it. down to the X-Men that's movies. so important to me. What a is series this Fast I don't and even Furious show for. done to you? I don't even care for that <laughs> X-Men reboot or whatever we want to call it here. But I do like his performance in those films, along with James McAvoy, who probably, as we've noted, should have been in Film Spotting Madness. It was funny to look at the comments because he won and he was in the lead the whole time. OK, and again, we got a lot of votes. It's not like Joaquin Phoenix was ever ahead of him. He was always in the lead. He stayed in the lead. And yet, if you look at the comments about it, and even the one we got there, the best defense we had for Fassbender was basically, well, he doesn't play as many sociopaths as Joaquin Phoenix does. <laughs> Everyone had a little disclaimer like that yeah. or a final way to just sort of tip the scale in his favor. Nobody just out and out defended Fassbender for being an immensely talented actor, which he is. The other thread we saw was what you heard from Edie there. Lots of commenters just crushing Fassbender for beating Kate Blanchett. Yeah. So maybe had the seating gone a little bit differently, we'd be seeing her in the final round here. But that talent, you know, Josh, with Fastbender, it's funny because I thought about this. I thought about how much love I've given to Fastbender over the years on the show, how often he's come up. It's a recurring joke. And I was never so egocentric to believe that somehow my appreciation for him or the fact that I talked about him a lot would actually cloud our listeners' judgment. But there was a little part of me as I saw him beating people like Marion Cotillard and beating Kate Blanchett and now beating Joaquin Phoenix. I thought, is it almost reflexive for some of our listeners? Are some of them voting for him as well? Because they think this is how it's going to go. And maybe they're not even fully considering which actor they appreciate. Do you think I swayed this at all? I think it's very possible that... Because I didn't defend him throughout this whole process. No, you've you've been pretty good about it. You've been been pretty pretty good about it during... Film spotted madness. But at the same time, this is why, like, say, McDonald's Blitzkrieg's ads on us, right? <laughs> so it's just the exposure. So we hear McDonald's so many times that the first thing we think of when it comes to a quick meal is McDonald's. <laughs> Maybe you've just said Fastbender so, so many times on this show that it's simply a matter of exposure. That's so. not doing our listeners enough justice. Josh. All right. Well, we'll see how smart, free-thinking individuals who love Michael Fassbender as much as I do, and there's nothing wrong with that. And to Edie's takedown of me, let's remember that even though, yes, I have a man crush on Michael Fassbender because he's the most beautiful person on the planet. I mean, he just is, and that's not up for debate. That all started because of 
his performances. Ultimately, what I appreciate most about Michael Fassbender is the talent. It's very different, the Joaquin Phoenix. Steven, our listeners there, said it really well. They're very different. They would not take on the same kind of roles. Michael Fassbender could never play Doc Sportello in Inherent Vice. He couldn't be Freddy in The Master. He couldn't be the main character in Her. I don't think he could. And I don't think Joaquin Phoenix could play not only Magneto, but Archie Hickox in Inglorious Bastards, or Bobby Sands in Hunger, or Connor the Boyfriend in Fish Tank. Those were the performances that really cued me in. Watch Hunger. Watch that 24-minute take, and watch Michael Fassbender embody that character and tell me he doesn't deserve to be in the same conversation as Joaquin Phoenix, because he does. I could see Joaquin Phoenix in Shame, the part that Fassbender played, and conversely, I could see Fassbender in The Master, in the part mm. that Phoenix played I very easily. No, I, I mean, couldn't. I think, yeah, I mean, that that's, you know, no, a litmus again, test you can see, use. I couldn't but see But it's hard to hold up what, you, Steve Jobs. what you've seen and against. And he's going to play that. Well, yeah, that'll be interesting, too. Yeah, I mean, what's what's been kind of strange throughout this madness thing for me is voting for actors in certain rounds and then voting against them in others later, just based on who they're up against. And mm-hmm. I think in this case, getting these, at least what we're saying is when you think of the top four and now the top two actors that you would be most excited about being in a film – it comes down to these two, and I think they're good representatives. I do of too. That. So yeah, I'm I'm fine with how it came out. I don't know where I'm going to go. Having voted against Fastbender already, I'm kind of feeling like that's possible now. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to really sit down and look at what Chastain has done and how much weight that carries because yeah. he has a strong body of work. Sure, and we've now talked about Fastbender so much that we've underplayed Jessica Chastain, who is the final combatant. You just here put in out another Fastbender ad, is what you did. <laughs> You're on to me. You're on to me, Josh. I'm with you, though, that overall, I'm happy with this. I think lots of listeners could go back to the original 32 and take issue with how certain battles played out, whether or not Marion Cotillard, whether or not Naomi Watts, Kate Blanchett are all better actresses than Jessica Chastain, whether or not Joaquin Phoenix and many other actors are better than Michael Fassbender. But I do feel like in terms of capturing a sense right now, Josh, of two actors who are capable of just about anything they put their minds to and are versatile talents, maybe if not in their prime, entering their prime. I think Fassbender and Chastain both qualify. I don't think it's an accident that they ended up here in those final two slots. Do you? No. And I think what's going to be really interesting for Chastain is how much the element of promise does play into it. I think they are in their prime, but if anyone perhaps has another level we have yet to see, it might be Chastain. So I don't know if that'll help her out a little bit. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to give her some airtime here. Me too. Mm-hmm. Me too. Uh-huh. Big fan. Voted for her several times, if not every time, throughout Film Spotting Madness. So it's fun. We've had fun with it anyway, and it will finally wrap up next week on the show. Vote now for the ultimate winner, the survivor of Film Spotting Madness. Jessica Chastain or that guy. You can vote now at filmspotting.net. Up next, something even harder than voting in Film Spotting Madness, choosing our favorite moments from the Fast and Furious franchise. The Film Spotting Top 5 is next. Stay with us. Y'all know 
know what we do, y'all know exactly how we rollin' And we huggin' every block, no matter how police patrollin' And we do it how we do it, whether it's now or it's later And we always handle business cause we bout Get in this paper, what you want, what you need As we walk through every gutter, every hood and every street And every block, we got it covered, throwin' money While we in the club with shorties on the pole Let's get it poppin' in this bitch, me and my click coming through this how we roll last show with Michael Phillips and Josh, we did not get to donations and our thank yous and some of those great comments we get from our listeners. So a little bit of a backlog here, but I don't think it's anything too overwhelming. We start with one that comes to us from a country that in the entire history of the show, Josh, I've never seen come up in donations or first time, huh? unless I'm mistaken here. I meant to do a search, but I am 99.999% positive that nobody has ever donated before from Malta, Emmanuel in Rabat, Malta. And I looked that up. I was just curious. And if you're curious, if you want to fly there, it's just over 13 hours from Chicago, Josh. It's the home, Rabat, to the famous catacombs of St. Paul and St. Agatha. See, I was going to guess Madagascar, but Malta's pretty good. Yeah, it is. Have you gotten a donation from Madagascar ever? I don't know. I don't know. I'll have to do some research before next donations. We also got a donation from Meredith, who is writing to us from Brooklyn, New York, and has a bit of a dedication for us. I'm making this donation for my husband, Stephen. It's his 31st birthday coming up on April 13, and I wanted to take the opportunity to support something he loves. He's been listening for years and has me hooked on the show, too. We look forward to listening together each week. We love hearing from couples who enjoy the show together. Oftentimes, it's one part of the couple forcing film spotting on the other to try to get them involved. But it's nice when everybody's doing it peacefully. And we wanted to say happy birthday to Stephen, though, you know, 31st, really? Why even why even celebrate that? I'm such a bitter old man. You are. It's only going to get worse, you know. (laughs) Another donation. And this one I really enjoy from Michael with his nickname, Mascone Bail Bonds T. He's in Saratoga Springs, New York. After many miles of grass cut and countless engine belt breakages. And yes, there was that minor fire during the sight and sound top 10. I have come to the point in my film spotting journey where I must give back more than pieces of the John Deere riding tractor named Alonzo Mosley. As this endless winter ends, I needed to pay the dealer. Pay the best podcast on the planet for the countless days, weeks, months given to me since episode 70. Thank you for the journey. I have one request. Take Midnight Run out of the Pantheon for a day. Then do a Massacre Theater, a top five Why Aren't You Popular with the Chicago Police Department, and maybe a brought to you by Moscone Bail Bonds. Here's to more and more. The engine is warming up and the grass is somewhere in the future. (laughs) So I love anybody who loves Midnight Run that much. And a little bit of film spotting lore here going back to the way early days. This has come up once or twice, but I don't know how much it's been talked about on the show. When Sam and I were trying to pick a name for the show, before we landed on Cinecast, we were, of course, looking for movie references. Mm -hmm. And the more oblique, the better. And because we both had so much adoration for Midnight Run, we did toy with for a while, especially being a Chicago set show, calling it unpopular with the Chicago Police Department. A little unwieldy. Cinecast even better. Cinecast worked better, yes. It did. It did work better. So thank you, Michael, for the great donation and for reminding me of how good Midnight Run is. I want to say we've definitely massacred that somewhere in the show's history. Maybe I don't not think you it was and me. me no, but... I don't think it was. But Sam and I, or me and Maddie, surely got to that one. Jen Gray also wrote in. She says, first of all, congrats on your big 10-year anniversary. I've been listening for maybe the last seven or so, and I love the show. 
Your latest episode was getting me and my husband through a road trip from Denver to Taos when you offhandedly mentioned next year's March Madness plan. We had to pause the show and immediately start brainstorming our director's <laughs> list. We're thinking it has to be the Spielberg-Scorsese memorial bracket, right? Hmm. Either one of those two would run away with the whole thing. Anyway, I can't wait to pull my list out next year and see how many I got that you've included. I don't know. I think they've got to both be in it. No, 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 sorry. You're well, already overruled, Josh. Okay. Well, no, then. <laughs> seriously, though, as Sam and I were initially sketching out the directors, he had put Spielberg and Scorsese kind of in a separate category. And I agree with them. And it's funny that Jen also tapped into this, that directors like that, and there's certainly a couple others, seem just maybe off for this list. The same way maybe Meryl Streep and even Daniel Day-Lewis was for our film spotting madness actors version. There's just certain certain directors that maybe... I don't know. They're too big. They're too well-known. They're too already anointed for that list. But in a year, who knows? Maybe we'll change our minds. All right. We'll see. I'll try to talk you out of it if you're really inclined to go with them. Nicholas Curcio also writes in from L.A. I have been a listener for somewhere around two years now, being yet another financially troubled recent postgrad with nothing more than an English degree. High five, Adam. There you go. I wish I could have donated much more than $25, but for now that will have to suffice. Uh, how did I ever live in a pre-film spotting world? The only thing I look forward to more than a highly anticipated film is listening to said film being reviewed by my favorite podcast hosts. This fall, if all goes as planned, I will be starting up graduate school for directing. There are absolutely no words to describe how film spotting has heightened my love for cinema and film criticism. I recommend this podcast to fellow film fanatics and students everywhere I go, as well as frequently give you guys love over on Reddit. Since your music is such an inspiring part of the programming as well, I wanted to leave you with a link to my debut EP I recorded last summer. If Adam gets a chance to read this, I want to quiz his literature skills and see if he gets the reference in the title of my EP. Wow. Talk about shame that I felt after reading this. I'm such a phony, and hopefully Nicholas will appreciate that choice of word there because his EP is titled, I Still Love You, Jane Gallagher. And I am, after all, the guy, the English major, who named his firstborn child, mm-hmm. Holden, yes. after Catcher in the Rye, and yet did not get the Jane Gallagher reference to Catcher in the Rye. I haven't read Catcher in the Rye in 24 years. Time to brush up? Maybe. Maybe it is. Thank you, Nicholas. And you know what? We talk about this. I joke about how Another lost soul, we've steered the wrong direction, a life of being penniless as they pursue their art. But it's always gratifying to read emails like that. And I know there are others out there. I know for a fact there are others out there who are film spotting listeners and who are out in L.A. and who are just embarking on this journey. And I think we just heard from some we recently. We did recently, we? and I become pretty good friends with one of those guys, Jason Eakin, out there who's made some short films. And maybe there needs to be some kind of film spotting support group. We need to get these guys together out there to help each other along the way. A few more donations here. A Silver Club donor, Taiha. That's how I'm going to say it. I'm probably just destroying it. T-A-I-H-A. Sounds right. In Chicago. And a new Bucka Show donor, Lisa in Waltham, Massachusetts. That brings us to some new $5 a month donors, Norm in Norwich. Do you think it's Norwich or Norwich? You're asking me. Yeah. What am I asking you for? Connecticut. He's in Connecticut. I can say that. Jacob in Los Gatos, California, and Billy Ray Bruton in L.A. I've been getting my weekly fix on your cinematic form of crack since December of 2013 when I made the long drive from Alabama to Los Angeles, and I've enjoyed every second along the way. It only seems fitting to finally pay for my drugs, so I hope my measly $5 a month goes towards some sort of crude torture device that forces Michael Phillips to watch the ending of Unforgiven over and over again until he realizes how oh-so-very-wrong he was and is. We can maybe arrange that. I am a writer and director and am working on my first feature film called Show Yourself. 
which were filming in the late summer. There you go. Another, Another member of the support group. While writing the film, one of the things that kept racing through my mind was, one day, years from now, what words do I want to hear Adam and Josh hopefully slaughter with an indecipherable accent? <laughs> He's already looking at Damascus Theater. <laughs> wow. Might want to have a few higher goals than that, but hey, start somewhere. So maybe I should give you guys co-writer credits. Oh, if you want to take the Alan Smithy, I totally understand. Anywho, for such a cinephile as myself, your show is required listening, and it's my absolute favorite thing in the world to introduce to other film lovers. Keep up the amazing work, and I hope my $5 helps until I'm able to drop a couple zeros on the end. <laughs> well, we certainly wish you all the best of luck there, and thank you for not only your kind words there, but also the great feedback you've shared, especially to a lot of our polls over the recent years. Finally, a $10 a month donor, Brian in Norcross, Georgia. Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you, all of our supporters. Hi, this is Martin McDonough. You're listening to Film Spotting. The Rio's nicest Cops are getting hungry. And I guess we're doing our job. I'm a walking target. I don't want you around when they catch up to me. Ride or die, remember? Dom, how long have we been doing this? And now all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it's too dangerous? You're listening to Film Spotting, where ride or die is also the words we live by. We are sharing our top five fast and furious moments, looking over all seven films of the franchise so far. What five scenes, sequences, or maybe just those little moments themselves stood out the most for us as the most memorable? Josh, I am dying to hear your five scenes. Yeah, the reason I thought moments would be perfect is because having only seen the first film even, I could tell that these were pictures that had those little flickers. There were going to be things maybe we laughed about, things that just weren't the sort of films we're into, but there were going to be flickers where everything came together and probably mostly action scenes, racing scenes, but also that sort of sublime ridiculousness that I talked about when we were reviewing Furious 7. And there's actually a comment here from a very minor character in Tokyo Drift that I think set me up for how I wanted to think about this list. It's Natalie Kelly. She's really one of the poor female parts in the franchise. Mm -hmm. But she does describe at one point in this monologue the nighttime drives she'd take up in the mountain roads. And she just says at some point, it's just the moment. And that's right. That was right for me. I mean, this franchise has been a collection of just these really nice moments. So that's what I've selected here. My number five does come from Tokyo Drift, even though I didn't rank it all that highly, but it has this spectacular vehicular mating ritual. Hmm. Totally throwaway moment, yeah. but I love what director Justin Lin does here. This is the film that he came on to the franchise with. It's the third film, and he really upped its game in terms of form, I think. He has this kinetic camera. He employs a judicious use of slow motion here and there. It just has this overall lucidity that does go on to be one of the hallmarks of the franchise. So this is where Lucas Black and Sung Kang, they're the Paul Walker Vin Diesel stand-ins in this <laughs> Yeah, he plays Han version. throughout the franchise. He does, yeah. We he don't does see Lucas continue. Black again except briefly. Very seven. briefly and a little bit older, yes, as we is. all are. 
<laughs> well, here they're driving around Tokyo, and they notice these two women sitting at a stoplight in their own souped-up race car. So the men's car proceeds to squeal in this circle, and it just continues. Like, I don't know how many circles they do around the women's car, number of turns, until the women smile and hold out this sheet of paper with their phone numbers. The guys, they straighten their car out, race by in a blur, and just grab the paper as they pass. And meanwhile, Lynn's camera is a part of this as well because it gets this overhead shot where it too is spinning in a circle. So it's silly, it's sublime, and it's it's sort of the franchise's version of a meet cute. This is how you yeah. meet cute in the Fast and Furious world. <laughs> it is, and it does tie back to something Lucas Black's character asks earlier about, well, what do you race for then if it's not for other cars? And he gives you the answer there, Han does, with that mating ritual. My number five, Josh, comes from your favorite installment nice. in the series Fast and Furious, which is the fourth, if you need a little bit of help distinguishing them. And I like that ride or die dialogue we came in with here with Rodriguez and with Vin Diesel because it isn't all about, we talked about this a lot with Furious 7, those big bombastic action moments. It is sometimes about believe it or not, the dialogue and the interplay between characters and the emotion. And there is a dialogue scene between Brian and Mia Toretto, Jordana Brewster, who, of course, is the sister of Vin Diesel's Dom. And they had a relationship going back to one. She felt betrayed. They finally come together in a sequence here in four where they come together and get to finally kind of confront each other about their past and maybe their future. And I like this scene a lot. I'm calling it the lying to yourself scene. I like it for two reasons, and I picked it for two reasons. One is it was, for me, the first profound bit of dialogue in the series that didn't strike me as totally cornball. I actually think that there are a couple really good dialogue scenes delivered really well by Sung Kang, who plays Han, in Tokyo Drift, but I watched Tokyo Drift at the very end, I thought I'd already seen it, and so I wasn't necessarily going to revisit it, but after seeing Seven, I wanted to go back and finally see it. I'm glad I did because it turns out I'd never seen the whole film. But he has a couple of good lines, but through the first film and certainly the second film, none of the scenes where anybody ever tried to be serious or heavy about anything worked for me. Not even in your beloved Fast and Furious 1, Josh. Oh, we'll get Sorry. to that in my next pick. Oh, oh gosh. <laughs> I had a feeling we would. But in this scene, both actors are performing with conviction, just earnest enough not overselling it at all. And this conflict is the other key theme of the franchise for me beyond family. What do you stand for? Who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? Part of what makes Dom so compelling as a hero is that he doesn't worry about those labels. He's established his own code. He lives his life. He has his own sense of right and wrong. Brian has no idea. And that's partly why he's drawn so much to Dom's character and his clarity. Mia nails him on it in this scene. No idea. I lied to Dom, I lied to everybody. That's what I do best, that's why the feds recruited me. Maybe you're lying to yourself. Maybe you're not the good guy pretending to be a bad guy. Maybe you're the bad guy pretending to be the good guy. You ever think about that? Every day. It's not a coincidence that this whole series then, for me, really takes off once Brian figures out the answer to Mia's challenge, which happens at the end of this movie. Which is exactly where we'll get to later in my list. Yeah, see, for me, 
my number four is going to be one of those moments that you probably did bristle at. It's the I live my life a quarter mile at a time scene in the Fast and the Furious. So hokey. I'm sorry, but you don't you don't get to apologize for the corniness later in the series when it's right there from the start. And it's the same essence, and I feel like it's being delivered with the same sincerity on the part of the two actors. And I appreciate that there isn't any sort of ironic level going on here. Sure, they grow into their parts a little bit better as the series goes on. That is inevitable, Paul Walker especially. But this scene here, when I first saw the movie, I sat up and thought, okay, this is a movie that maybe is being thought of by the studio and marketers as something for 14-year-old boys. But you know what? The people involved are taking it seriously, and that's coming through on the screen. So I do unironically appreciate this bro bonding that goes on, especially right here. This does take place in Dom's garage. It's the first time we get a sense of who he might be beyond this suspicious street racer. We're not sure if he's a criminal, how much of a criminal he is. We get a little bit behind that layer here. That's my dad. He's coming up in the pro stock car circuit. Last race of the season. Uh, a guy named Kenny Linder came up from inside in the final turn and clipped his bumper and put him into the wall at 120. Um, I watched my dad burn to death. I talked about before in our review how it's, you know, this isn't my language that they're talking, but they're unmistakably sincere. There's no posturing, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I don't sense any posturing here. It's just a scene where Dom shows Brian his garage and opens up a little bit about his past. I live my life a quarter mile at a time. Nothing else matters, not the mortgage, not the store, not my team and all their bullshit. For those 10 seconds or less, I'm free. I think that it speaks to also that being in the moment ethos that drives the best action scenes. There's a purity there, and it's a little bit a earlier version of what I talked about introducing my list, the just the moment comment that Natalie Kelly makes in Tokyo Drift. Here, Dom talks about being in the moment, and uh, I just like how that echoes something that will carry through even the action scenes. Yeah, it really is where one kind of goes off the rails for me, unfortunately. And it's not irony so much as what you said in terms of growing into their characters. They really do grow into their characters. They and do. They really do grow into their performances. They both, Diesel and Walker, get so much better as this series goes on. And it's not the lack of sincerity. It's too much sincerity. It's the over-earnestness that I didn't feel in that Brian and Mia scene that I had at number five. And I felt, Josh, that it was so forced in there. To give this character Oh, no, they're, they're comfortable. They're so comfortable there. <laughs> they're comfortable there, but the way it's forced into the script is what stuck out like a sore thumb to me. And I do think, ultimately, the ethos he verbalizes there doesn't even hold up over the course of the series that much. So it felt like a he little bit a of line, pseudo-macho yeah, blather to me. it again, he has a line there about, uh, you know— it, uh, he Nothing doesn't else even matters. care about his family, yeah. which isn't something they've no. established yet. So, yeah, I get that. But overall, this idea of the purity of the race, why they're in this, mm. again, beyond the money, beyond the phone numbers that you get from girls, that was there right at the start that, of this conversation. That stuff, that stuff about his dad and the guy he hit that hit you hard. Oh, yeah. When he when he talks about being uh, how he was scared. Uh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it brings a level of humanity to this. And this it is tries. somebody that this is somebody who can be scared. And mm-hmm. it also speaks to another through line. Now that you mentioned that is when he talks about how he got banned from the races for this act of violence. There's this 
consideration over how violent is Dom going to get. And I think it is, which film is it where the first one with The Rock, so Fast it's Five, five but it's where, he six. Holds off it's six. The, <laughs> where he holds off the wrench from just... No, you actually, know, I go back. It's five. It is You're five. Right. It's yeah, because that's when the first time we see The Rock mm-hmm. and he's, he could crack the rock know, skull they're open. calling back to so one, it's, uh, which it's, I'm yeah. pretty sure they'd so actually already done at least there's once a lot that. of yeah it's a it's a through line so yeah. there's a lot of bedrock stuff in one that the other series feeds off of and I think that's because there's some pretty strong stuff there okay I'm glad you feel that way my number four is a scene that I have to give full credit to our partner over at Film Spotting streaming video unit Allison Wilmore because after I saw seven. The next day, her BuzzFeed ranking of the series popped up in my Facebook feed, and she had a little line in there about basically, like, come at me, you know? And I was like, okay, well, how audacious can these be? How contrarian could her picks be? And I looked, and you think you're putting the fourth film at number one is a little bit nuts. How about Tokyo Drift as oh, the did best she? I was going to say, please tell me she didn't go too fast, too in the franchise. No, that would have been so <laughs> awesome. But reading that clinch for me that I was going to go back and watch Tokyo Drift or watch it for the first time, ultimately, and I might not have been as tuned into this moment without her focus on it. And it's the scene where Lucas Black's character, Sean, is riding with Neela, I think her name is. You've mentioned the actress a couple times. Natalie but Kelly, yeah. They are... In this chase sequence with the Drift King, the the baby gangster here in this movie, and they're going through Shibuya Crossing, this incredibly busy intersection. And Allison describes it this way. She says it's the series' most sublime moment. The neon-lit intersection is one of the busiest in the world, but as people scramble out of the way of the charging car for a moment, everything is still. It's not the speed that's the most thrilling part of the series after all. Despite the name, it's the quiet in the midst of all of it that's where the lunatic lyricism can be found. And she's right. As you watch it, it isn't just the stillness of it that catches you off guard a little bit and kind of allows you to breathe amidst this insanity of this chase sequence it's the visuals themselves you mentioned how justin lynn kind of pushed things forward a little bit and i agree with that to an extent because i think it's the only frame you could take out of any fast and furious movie and actually compare it to a kiristami movie because it feels just like the scene we love so much josh in like someone in love mm-hmm. one of his recent films the reflection of those lights on the windshield as they're sort of frozen in time for a moment Again, as Allison says, in a series that's all about speed, 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 to have that one moment where everything just calms and then we get right back to the chase, it is sublime and it's my number four. You know what one stands out to me like that as well? It's an honorable mention, but I'll just throw it out there now since we're talking about these quiet moments is at the very beginning of Fast Five where Brian and Mia are on the run. It's just setting up the film and we get this slow scene of them driving at regular speed. They look dirty and Mm -hmm. sweaty and tired. And I remember thinking, am I watching the right film? Because I've never seen a car go this slow. You're talking about five. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. That's one of the reasons... I love that movie and talk about how sophisticated it is compared to the others is because of the way it opens. Yeah, that that's really good. All right, we're up to number three, and my number three comes from my favorite Fast and Furious movie, Fast and Furious. I'm going to call it Driving to the Dark Side. It's what you alluded to earlier at the end here. Now, foremost among the reasons why this is my favorite one is because I think it really explores most deeply the idea of the theme of the cop and robber being two sides of Mm -hmm. the same coin. And this is common to Hong Kong action movies like Drug War or Infernal Affairs. And it's really well executed here, I think, with Brian and Dom both going undercover. They have their own reasons for doing this to take down a drug lord. It's really 
a repairing of this relationship movie because they're still at odds when it begins and they slowly come together by the end. And the final moment, this ending, is what I do want to pick. It's after Dom's been captured. He's been convicted. So he's on his way to jail on a prison bus. And of course, it's as all roads lead in the Fast and Furious franchise through a barren desert with mountainous (laughs) terrain in the background. So they're driving along and suddenly this team of cars zooms up from behind, which we know mean to rescue him. And who's driving the lead car? It's Brian, which means he's made a clean break here from the law. Mm -hmm. And he's now officially committing to Dom's team. It's a quick scene, but I love the details. He's in a black car, which maybe you think doesn't mean much, but he's also an American muscle car, which maybe you think doesn't mean much. But we know he usually prefers bright imports, right? That's Brian's style, but not here. Also, Dom sitting in the prison bus. I love how he knows what's going on. How? The engine. Of course. Here's the engine. He's like, okay, that's all I need to know. And this leads to what I think is a great cliffhanger ending Mm -hmm. where we don't see what happens until the next film, as you talked about. I just just love how they, at this point, they had the confidence and the commercial clout to be able to do that in a way that really does pay Mm -hmm. off. Well, going back to my number five pick, there's something always a little bit thrilling about watching someone finally figure out who they are. Even if they're going to the dark side, uh-huh. as it turns out, or what many might perceive, society might perceive as the dark side, at least he's finally embraced his true calling, which up to this point he hasn't been able to do. Before we get to my number three, we did put out a feeler on Facebook and Twitter for some voicemails. We asked our listeners to weigh in with their favorite Fast and Furious moment. We got this from Josh Youngerman. He is in Bushwick, New York. scene where Letty saves uh, Dom in Furious 7, and then the scene where Dom saves Letty in Furious 6. Uh, The reason I think these work so well is they sort of underline the themes of family um, and love that this series has, and also, as ridiculous as the action is in these movies, and they are ridiculous, the reason it's grounded is because uh, you actually care about the characters. So um, I think that central relationship, while, you know, the bromance is still very strong, uh, that central relationship is key to why these Fast and Furious films speak to such a wide audience. Thank you very much. So, Josh, as you're well aware, Josh Youngerman, a huge fan of this franchise. He likes his I Fast mean, and Furious movies. We like to think we're, we're experts, we're <laughs> dilettantes compared to Josh at this point. And he did cheat a little bit there, connecting scenes from two different movies with Letty and Dom. And that dovetails nicely into my number three pick. It's another dialogue scene. It's another key line of dialogue, I think, in this whole series. It's from Furious 6. And as much as I do think this is a step down from Fast Five, it's in this exchange, which happens between Dom, Vin Diesel, and the bad guy, Owen Shaw, where Dom's true ethos, and by extension, the ethos that truly grounds this whole franchise is laid out, and it's certainly all over Furious 7. It isn't that quarter-mile-at-a-time macho talk. It's the living by a code that puts family above all else. And as we noted during our review, family doesn't just mean who you're related to by blood. That's great in the holidays, but it makes you predictable. And in our line of work, predictable means vulnerable. And that means I can reach out and break you whenever I want. At least when I go, I'll know what it's for. Well, at least you have a code. Dom's great line there, at least when I go, I'll know what it was for. 
pardon me, Josh, for trying to make this all a little bit deeper than it may truly be. But what more can any of us ask for when we go, really? Yes, family and that type of love and that type of connection is messy. It does make you vulnerable, but it's more meaningful and it's more satisfying than something like what drives the other guy, which is precision. The little chat does end nicely, too, with one of Shaw's men ready to take Dom out because he knows Dom isn't going to break his code. So he comes prepared to not let him disrupt his plan. But, of course, Dom has some backup of his own, as we see in The Rock, and we get this nice little showdown between these two rivals. This whole conversation is something that could almost be taken out and plopped into a classic Western on the streets of some frontier town between these two gunslingers. And I really like that scene, but I really like what it's ultimately about and how it connects to the whole series or the whole franchise more than anything. Yeah, I did like that precision ethos that the Luke Evans character had. That's why I think he's one of the better villains is he's not just this drug Yeah, at lord. least he has a code. He, ha- he has this vague goal, that's for sure, the James Bond villain goal. But but I do like how you see that in even the cars that his team has, this mm-hmm. sense of precision. So uh, he's, he's definitely a plus in that film. My number two is coming from the conventional favorite, Fast Five, and it's the cliff jump. This is at the end of the Bravura opening set piece. After Dom has rescued Brian, just before he collides, he's jumping off this train that's going to – and he's going to collide into the bridge that's going over this enormous canyon. So he jumps on Dom's car, doesn't crash, but then they're too close to the edge. So what are they going to do? Well, Dom hits the gas, of course. (laughs) What else would he do? And gives them as much elevation as possible, the chance to time their jumps from the car into the river that's way, way, way down below. Again, it's a single shot, really, that I'm picking out here. When we cut to that medium shot, looking at Dom and Brian from the hood of the car, slow motion, the music and sound effects cut out, except for the wind. All we hear, there's Mm -hmm. this purity to it. And their faces. I mean, if you you think about, now how does an action star act, really, besides having charisma, maybe, or a persona? How do you actually act when you're doing something? They're not actually jumping off this cliff, but they're still acting out action. And they really, the expressions they pull work. I mean, you get a rare yeah. look of concern from Dom in sure. this scene. Like he's he's not quite sure how this is going to go. Brian, one thing I like about Paul Walker throughout the series, he often will show fear mm-hmm. when something crazy is going on. And you definitely see that flicker of fear here. Yet both of them, there's something else on their look that says, this is surmountable. We can figure this out. <laughs> if we've survived everything uh-huh. else, we can figure this out. So they're not just purely scared. So even if this was all CGI, I think those faces would make it worth it. And they did use a green screen for that medium shot. But I did look and I found, maybe we'll link to it in show notes, uh, how they did it sequence as well. And they used an air cannon to launch a Corvette into a canyon, not quite as high up, but they launched the Corvette out. Then they also had the stunt guys separately jump from the same spot. Mm. And then they put the two sequences together in post-production. But man, it definitely has, you buy it when you watch it, you buy the whole thing. You definitely do. And I actually have that same sequence from Fast Five as my number two. But there's a specific moment I'm going to single out that's different from the cliff jump the train heist though i think overall is just a really thrilling sequence it it might be really that first demarcation line that we've gone from the previous world that split we touched on earlier to this new james bond jason bourne 
Mission Impossible world where something like that cliff jump that seems totally ridiculous, but in the moment you completely buy it. That's where this shift really starts to happen with this franchise. And I'm going to keep the Western theme going a little bit here, because if you think about it, this sequence 60 years ago or so would have happened very similarly, except with horses horses. riding up alongside the train. And they'd be riding horses. They'd be stealing money or diamonds or something instead of confiscated cars. And they definitely would not have had that vehicle lift thingy that allows them do so conveniently slide cars off the train and then drive the cars onto the ground safely. I suppose, Josh, it probably wouldn't end with our two heroes riding their horses off a cliff into the water and surviving either. But this is the world of Fast and the Furious. Otherwise, I think John Ford would have shot it exactly the same way (laughs) Justin Lin does. The barren Brazilian landscape actually seems ripped from a Ford movie. And I'm going to push it a little bit more here with my favorite part of the sequence. It's not O'Connor just barely making it onto Dom's vehicle before hitting the bridge or that jump. It's Vin Diesel's entrance. The movie opens with Brian and Mia and Vince, one of the characters from Fast and Furious 1, and them agreeing to take this job, which they think is just them stealing some cars. Diesel hasn't actually shown up on screen yet at this point. They haven't connected with him. And that lift vehicle thing pulls up alongside the train. We don't really know who's driving it or who's on it. And they start to cut the metal. And because I'm not a gear guy or any kind of tool guy, I can't tell you what that thing is. That is called a uh, metal cutter. Metal cutter. Thank you, Josh. I knew I had you around for good reason. They cut this big open gap enough to fit a car in, in this moving train. And Lynn then cuts to inside, where, of course, it's dark because they're inside the train. But as that metal side of the train falls off, the light comes in. And who walks in? But Vin Diesel. He emerges from the light into the light, actually, where we see that close-up of his face. And I'd have to go back and watch it, but it feels like a little bit of a track forward on his face for dramatic effect, a la John Wayne and his entrance in Stagecoach. I think it's a really nice visual moment that Lynn allows us as viewers to catch our breath, to welcome our hero, the alpha male, onto screen before the chaos really ensues. Or how about the searchers, the end of the searchers, the yeah. sort of silhouette where you see the vista behind You're right, him absolutely. Too. So, yeah, yeah, that is just a fabulous sequence. All right, my number one is racing across the train tracks from, yes, Adam, your favorite, The Fast and the Furious, the ending of the first film. Really? Yeah. Oh, I, I love this scene. Old school. It's it's the ultimate Fast and Furious moment for me because it's a thrilling stunt that also defines so much about the characters. Uh, these are the final moments. This is after Brian has tried to convince Dom to turn himself in. They end up having this argument, and it gets more complicated than this. Some bad guys show up, but basically at the end, they're left together, and they're going to settle this with an impromptu street race, as so often happens. They end up communicating everything from this point on through their actions, and it gets extra complicated once the race begins because a train starts approaching at the crossing that's lying ahead. So everything is heightened here once the train shows up. Is that going to convince Dom that he should give up and turn himself in? Like, this is, you know what? You've had a good run. Pull over. If not, how far is Brian going to go to catch him is the next question. Is he going to risk crossing the tracks himself? So it's a test for both of them in so many ways. And then we get that sublime shot just after they've crossed and escaped. They've burst through the gates and the train just fills the screen behind them. You've got the two cars and the train racing behind them. Uh, The capper is that 
they smile at each other in relief and also the thrill they've just experienced. It, it sort of defines this character camaraderie and the conflict that's really going to go on to define for me the heart of the series until they do get to be on the same team. Once yeah. that tension leaves, some of the attractiveness to me for the series leaves a little bit too. But here it's there. It's setting so much up. Um, I don't know if any, I couldn't find anything about how they shot this sequence, if any CGI was used here or if they actually somehow timed that with the train. But it, again, it is entirely convincing and my favorite Fast and Furious moment. It's a great moment. I liked it better when it was surfing in Point Break, but you it's a good point moment. Break? Jeez. <laughs> I do it just to annoy you. <laughs> don't my... ever try to copy Point Break. It can't be done better. Well, we're going to see someone try it as it's being remade, so I'm sure I'm going to loathe that film. Yes. My number one, after all this attempts at pontificating about connections to Westerns and the ethos of the franchise and these serious moments... I got nothing more. It comes down to flying cars. As listener Jarrett Green said it on Facebook, in Fast 7, when they drive dang cars out of a dang plane. Really? Yes. Come on, just in terms of pure, just the craft of that whole sequence. But you've criticized the CGI in other scenes. That's got to be a lot of CGI, don't you think? Yeah, but it's not about CGI. It's about when you notice the CGI and it feels fake. And I do actually remember... You brought up in Furious 7 during our review the A-Team and how they dropped a tank out of yeah. the plane. I've seen that sequence, oh, sure, actually, yeah. you know, flipping through channels. It's like, done I, much better here. It's horrible. I mean, granted, it's a tank and you don't care about any of the characters and it's not all these different cars and whatever. But everything about how this is crafted versus just the mass chaos of that yeah. and the bad kind of chaos, not the zen kind that you appreciate and that I appreciate as well. There's none of that craft in something like the A-Team. Owen Shaw would appreciate the precision of everything about this sequence. And I just think the whole sequence works. It's that flip you talked about. It's the last second escape Paul Walker has. But it was just feeling that bit of vertigo, watching these cars on that big IMAX screen and then watching them somehow perfectly land exactly well, except for one of them, land precisely where they're supposed to land and then see them carry out their plan. There was something beautiful about it. You know what? I'll give you this. That's finally where Tyrese won me over. It mm-hmm. took it took six films. <laughs> when his bravado but, just degenerated into abject fear. Yeah, I kind of liked him there. That felt authentic. That's my number one. Flying cars in Furious 7. And those are our top five fast and furious moments. We have another voicemail, Josh. I wanted to get to a longtime listener, Christopher Redman. Hey, Adam and Josh. It's Christopher Redman here from DearCastAndCrew.com. I want to thank you guys for giving a little love to Fast and the Furious. Uh, This most recent film is certainly worth discussing, if for no other reason than I defy you to find a franchise that has gotten so much better and successful with each new film. I mean, Furious 7 actually made more money in its first day than Tokyo Drift did altogether. And I only jumped on the bandwagon with Fast 5, where that train sequence single-handedly elevated the series, in my opinion, to must-see status for all action fans. But my favorite moment is actually the post-credit clip from Fast and Furious 6. Now, without giving anything away, they kill off a major and beloved character after the movie was done. I mean, after the movie was done. Think about that. Not only that, but they also introduced my man crush, Jason Statham, as the big bad for Furious 7. So the last two years of waiting have been kind of torture as a result, but the wait was worth it. This series is truly pushing what's possible in action cinema, and I defy anyone to see it and not have a good time. So thanks, guys, but if you'll excuse me, Daddy's got to get to work. So he, too, loves the train sequence at the beginning of Fast Five, but his number one, I'm embarrassed to admit, because I never stick around for these, is the post credit sequence 
to number six. I saw a couple of people reference this, that everybody knew that Jason Statham was going to be the bad guy in Furious 7 because it was foretold in Fast and Furious 6. I didn't know that. Yeah, we stuck around for those credits. Saw that too. Yeah? Yeah. Well, the music, how could you not? Why would you want to turn that music off? <laughs> no, that's, that's a good point. We do lose a key character at the end of that as well, but I'm going to have to put the DVD back in and watch it just to enjoy it as much as Christopher did. What about any honorable mentions, Josh, that you really regretted leaving off? your Fast and Furious moments. Well, Joshua Youngerman talked about the Dom Letty relationship, which I did really appreciate throughout this franchise. So I thought about putting the one that I think he may be referencing or it might come right after that where they're comparing scars. Dom, at this point, she still has amnesia. I love that. I love that there is an amnesia subplot in this franchise as well. That actually works. Oh, of course and, there and is, here, because it goes back to Jason Bourne a little bit. Yeah. And here he's trying to jog her memory by comparing the scars. Mm-hmm. One, one that they've got together at the same time. So that's from Fast and Furious 6. Dragging the vault at the end of Fast 5. I mean, that that's another reason I think people hold that up as the favorite because it's bookended with these huge action set pieces and dragging the vault is pretty good. And then I did have one I thought about from Furious 7, not the flying cars, but plain chicken. Twice in this film... There's a yeah, game of Statham. chicken that ends. I at least have never seen a game of chicken in a film end this way. <laughs> no one's of, dared. Speaking of mating rituals in <laughs> yeah, cars. A little bit. A little bit. <laughs> so I thought about that one. Okay. Well, I've got a few here as well, including from Tokyo Drift, another one I did think about when Sean has his first race in Tokyo against the Drift King. Not only because we get some great camera stuff, oh, but yeah. because he gets so soundly thumped. Yes, and that yes. little bit of humor as he limps to the finish line works the fuel tanker hijack at the beginning of your favorite fast and furious 4 Mm -hmm. because it calls back to fast and furious 1 and you think about how that movie begins and ends we haven't seen these characters in two or three so it's like Lynn right away said hey i'm getting the gang back together here and everything's right with the world with that hijack scene very similar as i touched on during our seven review when the rock and vin diesel finally throw down after all that testosterone and that back and forth they finally just get to unleash it on each other in five i like that the tank rescue at the end of six is also really good and in terms of just pure humor the best line in the whole franchise is in fast five when the team reunites and tyrese asks Ludacris if he's going to give martin luther king's car back and Ludacris says to tyrese as soon as he gives rick james's jacket back you I'm like sorry. That, huh? I thought that was funny. But just to rub it in, just to rub it Not in. Not another Tyrese moment. No. I've got, well, yeah, actually, it does involve Tyrese <laughs> because it's from Too Fast, Too and Furious. I, the oh. Warehouse Scramble. The Warehouse Scramble as part of the big set piece in that movie. I think our friend, the very wise, the very wise Sean Gilman, the dean of the Film Spotting Forum, one of the key members of the Film Spotting Advisory Board, I think in his letterbox review, he compared it to Minnelli. Really? With the colors well, there dancing. Is that, yeah, and there is that overhead shot. Where the overhead shot. Yeah, That's it. Yeah. It's good. Come on. And Tyrese is in it. He's very far away. He's very far away. For the record, I think Tyrese is very good in Baby Boy. He's Singleton's very good Baby in Baby Boy. Boy. So He's I, I do like him as an actor. I, I think this series much. does not... Do him justice. Really? I mean, come on. It, he's. I think. I think they used him just right in seven. Could have gone yes, a little bit too far. I agree. They used him just right. He won me in over seven. by seven. Okay. Those are finally 
our top five and then some Fast and Furious moments, please send us your picks or any other comments about the show, including please stop talking about Fast and the Furious. <laughs> you might get that Feedback first. at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744, or find us on Twitter at Filmspotting. That's Adam. I'm at Larson on Film. We're also at Facebook, facebook.com slash Filmspotting. On our website, filmspotting.net, you can find over 10 years of show archives and take part in the final round of Film Spotting Madness. Can my guy, I'm not even going to say his name because I don't want to plant it. Can he be taken down by the great, the you're, great Jessica Chastain? You're shameless. Jessica Chastain. Only one survives to act another day. A movie coming out in wide release this weekend, Josh, that fits very nicely with Furious 7, The Longest Ride, though this is a Nicholas Sparks Furious adaptation. Eight already? <laughs> yeah, there it is. And in limited release, one of the ones we'll touch on, how about the music box playing Powell and Pressburger's The Tales of Hoffman and also The Maisel's Grey Garden. Wow. So some classic cinema, certainly worth checking out at the music box this weekend. Out on VOD of interest to us, Lost River, the directing debut from one Ryan Gosling, kicked out of Film Spotting yeah. Madness, I think a second round loser. This one stars Saoirse Ronan and Ben Mendelsohn and Eva Mendes, the wasted Eva Mendes in Too Fast, Too Furious. So he can no longer act because he's kicked out of Film Spotting Madness, so he goes on to direct. Except he's directing Ben Mendelsohn here, so somehow our rules hmm. from Film Spotting Madness hmm. aren't applying. They're not paying attention to us. I don't know what it is. Next week on the show, we are going to review the latest from Noah Baumbach with Ben Stiller, Naomi Watts, and Adam Driver. It's While We're Young. And share our top five midlife crisis movies. This one might cut it a little too close to home. Have you had a midlife crisis yet, or you fear you're about to have one? I'm on the verge. You're on the I'm verge. I'm certainly on the verge. So, so this review might put you over. I think actually this entire show may qualify as my midlife crisis. <laughs> I think you're right. You just had it. You came through all right. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. I am ready for a Fast and Furious trivia show. I think I am, too. I've spent way too much time. Next week? I would fail that trivia show. No, I think this information will leak out pretty quickly. Nice. <laughs> nice. Okay. The other thing that when you're watching all these in yeah. a row, that's so amusing, is like you realize there's also a, thir- a shirt threshold that Diesel has. Like he can't, he can't put on a normal shirt no. at some point or he just looks yeah. ridiculous. That's a good point. And so... When he's in the tank tops, he's good. Yeah. The mechanic shirts, mm-hmm. he's good. Mm-hmm. Some of those short sleeve button ones, but then every once in a while he'll show up in a normal shirt and it's just like the shirt can't contain him. Okay. <clears throat> I'm going to, so I'm going to change shirts. For okay. This, just to feel like I'm, let's do is it. Is what I'm saying. Okay. <clears throat> um, here we go. I don't think I got that one. Got what? I was trying. I no, was trying a couple not. variations. You did not. And none close. of them came close. No, I'm disappointed in Man. you. But it just shows how hard it is to be Vin Diesel. Yes. I have more respect now.